Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. Very recently, I was reading a study from Gallup that found that only 33% of employees strongly agree that they have a strong connection to their colleague. And the funny thing is that not many realize that this connection, this lack of connection, in fact, can reduce productivity, increase absenteeism, have higher turnover, lower customer satisfaction. I mean, the core of the business, right? And I found even that the Society of Human Resources Management found that uh, 47% of employees say that they feel lonely at work. So this connection thingy is quite important at work. Imagine 60% of the corporations have a hybrid world where there is a mix of people who are working in an office and a mix of people who are working in the front lines, doing either manual work or even, even or facing customers. And we don't know really how to interact in the correct way. It's almost like two walls are separated and there is a wall in the middle that doesn't let them connect. Now, I found the right person who has been living both of these walls for many years. Jesse Hernandez is the founder of Depth Builder. His company is made to help leaders deepen their communication skills and build trust through kind of development initiatives. Uh, also, he has he's the author of the book, Becoming the Promise You Are Intended to Be. And the fact that he has been working in the construction industry for close to 20 years, make him the right person to tell us about a little bit more about the topic of how we should connect. If you are a leader, how you should be connecting with your people. Jesse, it is, I'm so happy to have you today in this episode. Can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, about these 20 years of challenges and interactions with people? Yes, Yvonne, thank you. I'm super excited. Thank you for that intro. Um, so I'll start, like I entered the workforce uh, back in 1995, which I'm learning like nowadays, some people will say like, man, I wasn't even born yet. Like, man, that blows exactly. my mind. Wow. Um, and so I entered as a as a plumber. I started my plumbing apprenticeship, installing plumbing back then. And I think because I've had a um, perpetually discontent uh, nature, meaning when things aren't when things feel harder than they need to be, I can't leave them alone. And so that led to when I began my career, started off as an installer, foreman, superintendent. I was in charge of training and development, recruit different things, recruiting, all kinds of stuff. Then I went from there um, to work in for a, a, one of the largest builders here in the, in the U.S. Uh, as a, we'll say, a change leader or maybe internal consultant within the organization to help uh, business units and project teams deploy change and like cultivate buy-in and all that stuff. Then I went to work for another national organization. Um, they wanted me to help them on a cultural transformation, which was like, does it make sense? Because the only official certifications I have is like my plumbing license. That does not translate to 
helping people transform the culture. And then after that, I became, I started my own business and I have my, my own single person consulting firm. The thing that I got to see on that path is that we're definitely human beings. We are more alike than we are different. And most of the problems that people are dealing with, regardless of education, uh, economical background, um, level of responsibility in terms of dollars, you're running a billion dollar port annual revenue firm, or it's just you trying to deal with your cousin. They're all rooted in, how should I say, in what it is we focus on and how we demonstrate appreciation. And if we can, when we attack that, and, and it ain't easy, but when we attack that, the outcomes are tremendous. I've been able to see, you know, on my journey, I've worked with hundreds of amazing leaders, a powerful leader, super influential with huge responsibility. But only a few stand out, Ivan. The few that stand out are the ones that had a people-centered focus. And, and they don't just stand out because they were nice to me. They stand out because their business outcomes were dramatically better than their peers. And if I had to put my finger on it, it was the way they demonstrated appreciation for the human beings that came across their path. So Jesse, it doesn't astonish me. Your journey, in fact, coming from the initial stages of being a manual worker and going into the, this change management, change changing culture, it doesn't astonish me because at the end, many corporations have been facing like this, the challenge of cultural change. And then they outsource this type of jobs to big consultants, some McKinsey's, they have their framework. And the sad thing, I have seen it very often, it doesn't work because their frameworks are <clears throat> kind of reproducing a factory step-by-step step instead of considering the, <clears throat> the psychology of human beings. And to understand the psychology of human beings, I mean, you don't need even a degree in psychology. You need to have this empathy too. And you have mentioned, for instance, recognition to understand what drives a person that either you are a blue collar or a white collar or wherever you come from, we all are human beings with similar needs. And that similar needs can be only understood for people that pay attention to that, right? So yeah. that job was totally deserved, uh, Jesse. I, I, I'm, I have seen it with my own eyes how bad change management is has been put together in many corporations, and there has been millions of dollars spent just because yes. the focus was on the change itself. What needs to change, for instance, digitalization or people who are more motivated, but without understanding uh, of the elements that makes that we feel all together wanting that change. And that produces a lot of friction. So you spend a lot of money, but people do not do shit. You, you know, Ivan, the, the friction, right? Like changing a new system, or rather we'll say changing a current system, launching a new system, whatever that is, new technology, new whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah. New, new organizational structure, that's easy. Because all I got to do is sit down here in my boxer shorts, write that down, put it together, and send an email and say, effective tomorrow, this is what we're going to be doing. So 
the redesign of the system is the simplest, easiest part. The problem is the way we socialize that, the way we go about identifying the problems that we're trying to fix is the gap. And because we don't invest, and it's not like a huge, gigantic investment, it's just a shift in the way I operate as a human being. Ooh. When we deploy that or when we introduce the change, we light fires <laughs> and we create the friction, unnecessary friction. And then what are we left with? Well, then all we can do is manage all the people that aren't complying. And guess what? Those people were amazing yesterday. They're still amazing. You just didn't pay attention to what their problems are or help them understand how this is going to better serve them and the purpose of the business. And so now I'm going to go like have negative consequences on these folks who aren't complying because they can't connect to the vision or the purpose behind the damn thing. That's the leader's fault. <laughs> and so we put, we end up developing all of these systems to manage. And maybe I should say it more frankly, we end up spending, spending a whole lot of money to manage behavior and performance as a reaction to change as if we all are just waiting around for something to change. Like, could we please change something today? Nobody, 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 nobody likes change, right? Like I, that's what I do. It's part of my business is I help deploy change and I love it. You know why? Because it's not me having to change. I'm helping change things for other people, right? And if somebody is coming in to change my way, my, the way I do things, the way I function, that there, you got to expect the friction. And so mm -hmm. the question then is, how do you minimize that friction? Like, and it, it doesn't happen, um, rather, if you're waiting to deploy your improvement object initiative or whatever, to start thinking about uh, minimizing the friction uh, that human beings have around change, you've waited too long because anybody, everybody can start doing that right now. It's simple and it's difficult. I love your sincerity and I share completely your view. Nobody likes change. We like preaching about it. We can understand the elements that makes the change, but it's always with a little bit of pain and we don't like that pain. We right, like right. the usual pleasure of doing the same again and again. That's how, how our brain is constructed. Coming back to this um to that journey that you have got, um, knowing the frontliners and moving into the office to drive to help your organizations or several organizations drive change. What would you say are the, the key dif uh, difference that you should consider when con trying to connect or trying to communicate with people who are more into the manual area versus office people? How, would you yes. communicate change in the same way? Absolutely not. Like, absolutely not. And, and you know, I have a super unfair advantage in that I've been able to work at the different levels within the construction industry. Working for a trade contractor, there's a power dynamic between the trade contractor and the general contractor and the owner of the building. Within that trade contractor, there's a power dynamic between the apprentice and the, the journeyman and the foreman and this like, so 
there's all these power dynamics that I've been able to like learn how to slide in and up and down through. And that was one of my first huge, huge takeaways is like, oh, there's there we we want to accomplish this, but the words that they use don't mean anything to me as an installer. But I want the same thing that they're going after. They're just saying it in language that I don't understand. Um, and so when I say it, it, the way I think about it is, or the, here's my observation. Generally, you know, department heads, uh, people with like official supervisors, managers, et cetera, they will speak about a change or an initiative in the terms that they're using in the office or in the meetings to the folks that are actually going to be impacted the most by the change and expecting those people to learn this new secret language that the office people use. That is un, rather, I was, like you can keep doing that. You're going to have the same outcomes. But yes. I think it's the, the manager or, or the leadership of the organization's responsibility to become multilingual. And I don't mean Spanish, French, German, Portuguese. I mean the different languages that the groups within your organi organization speak. And so because I had come up from the, the deal, like coming up as an apprentice and a journeyman and a foreman, and then I was in the office, I could see like, okay, so we're trying to improve productivity so that we can go and get some more work because we're trying to grow the business because it's an employee-owned company. And if we get more revenue, the stock value is going to go up, like all of this stuff. I get it. But as an apprentice, I don't like, what does that mean? You're going to make me work harder? I'm already working damn hard right now. No, that's not what I'm like. So, okay, what's the translation? I came in, we're going to pay attention to the type of work um, that we're doing and the way we approach that specific task that you're working on, because we want to make it easier for you. Mm -hmm. Because if we make it easier for you, you're going to be healthier, you're going to be happier, and we're going to be able to do more work in the same number of hours. And if we do that, our project budgets are going to perform better, which is going to translate into stock. And if you're in the st employee stock option program, your value, if you bought it at $40, and it goes up to 43, that's three extra bucks for every share that you own. That may, oh, okay, so you're not telling me I have to work harder. You're telling me that we're going to improve this thing to make life easier for me and put more money in my pocket. I understand now. And so I think that's the problem is we expect the folks that are closer to the work to learn the language of the office. Hmm. And I don't think that's appropriate. I think the the people in the office need to learn all the languages throughout the organization. And if we did that, you would, I rather, when I started doing that, obviously it's contributed to, to my entire career because I just kept learning new languages. I didn't forget the old ones. And I was just kind of like a translator early on until, you know, then I developed other skills to help people with. Jesse, if I understand correctly, we all want the same, <clears throat> but the the way we communicate, which by the way, doesn't mean simplification. It's not that we need to, <clears throat> to talk like a seven years old to a, a, a somebody who works in the manual uh, work. It's just that we need to catch their interest. These guys, they also want to earn more. They also want predictability about their jobs. They also want recognition. They, they want the similar things that they 
the guys in the in the office. It's just that behaviors and mindsets are different. That means that in order to touch their hearts, we need to adapt the language. But that adaptation doesn't mean the condescendent message saying, hey, this is money, more money, more work. No, that's bullshit, right? Right, right, right. So it's really about putting it in terms that the person in front of you appreciates and taking into account the time horizon that they view their world through. And so what do I mean by time horizon? When I was an installer, with all the advice in the world, I still live check to check. Mm-hmm. So my time horizon did not exceed a week. Because if it did, I wouldn't be living check to check. And so if you're telling me about Q1 and Q2 and Q3, I don't know what the hell that means. But if you tell me about something that like, because within Q- every quarter, there are weeks. So if you frame the thing within the context of one week, I can understand it because that's the time horizon I think through, right? If you can frame it in terms of what I'm doing before lunch and after lunch, that's going to resonate with me because that is my world. I'm not looking at labor projections and financial projections and mergers and acquisitions. I don't care about that. What do I need to do to make sure my pay don't go down by Friday? That's it. And so how do I translate that? Now, what's also interesting, as people, you know, um, get promoted throughout the organization, their time horizon expands. And so what does that mean? Their language, the con- the context that they give certain words and separate, certain ideas transform with the time horizon. And so, again, when I was a when I was a foreman, I kind of understood what a quarter was, but it wasn't relevant to my work. What was most relevant to me was, am I going to have the personnel to execute the work this week, next week, and where am I going to be when this project ends in three months? So my time horizon might have been an entire quarter, but I wasn't thinking in terms of uh, revenue and profit. I was thinking in terms of executing the task and making sure me and my crew were going to have a job in three months. And so... Uh, so there's that's the levels of what do I appreciate at that point and in what terms do I think and how do I contextualize my message as the manager or leader so that it can land appropriately with the person I'm trying to deliver it to part of the problem rather I'll say this the key is learning how to listen (laughs) and when I say listen I don't mean not making mouth noise while somebody else is talking. Listening is paying attention to the cues, right? Like what are they, what are the questions that they're asking and what's like the real vulnerable thing they're trying to hide behind the question, right? Like, so for example, if I say, well, could you, could you give me an example of that? That's a question. Mm -hmm. What's behind that? I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. But if I say that, there's the level of vulnerability and risk that comes with me admitting that I don't know what my boss is talking about. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to convolute it, right? Or maybe polish it so that I maintain my credibility. Now, as a leader, when I can understand like, oh, they don't really understand and they're uncomfortable. So if I can break it down in a different way, or rather, if I can make the situation such that they know that I'm as human as they are, 
And there's a lot of stuff that I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure it out. All of a sudden, communication becomes very simple because I was listening to hear what's their insecurity, what's their fear, what's their concern, what do they value? If I can listen to the words and the body language that the person in front of me is giving, that's signaling to me and use that, rather process that so that I can engage with them as a human to another human, now I'm listening. What do you think? I love that, Jesse. Jesse, while you were talking, I was trying to, to, to figure, figure out the, the, it is almost like an assumption that I have because I, I haven't been through the, uh, to the full understanding of, of the uh, dynamics, the relationship dynamics in, in, the, in the workplace. Um, and I wanted to understand, is it like when in the universe of people working in the manual work area, the leadership, the concept of leadership might be different than the people in the office. Let me let me explain you wh what I mean. It's like we you have been working together with the same people, and they are kind of even doing similar jobs. They are every day they are beside of you, uh, and if there is somebody who becomes a leader, a supervisor, or whatever we can uh, we can call it, um, it is it's almost like we recognize that he deserves it because he has been working with me. I know the guy. When he was in the same level as me, he, with hard work, he has become so. It's almost like he deserves. Uh, is he he has earned his medal, if you want, of being a leader sure. in the office? Is somebody had the idea that um, Jeff from uh, the other office needs to be put into that position? It's almost like somebody sent him from the outside, and we don't know in the office. So the type of relationship is is a little bit different from one side. I would say the hierarchy is more like he deserves it because he has been working with me and I know how good he is or not. Um, and in the office is like whatever the guys in the seventh floor will send us, we will take it. Is that correct? Is something to consider also in the way we communicate? I think so. Absolutely. Um, because when now I've been promoted many, many times to different levels mm -hmm. and the people that I work directly with like that spent the most amount of time with me, I'll say 80% of them agreed I should have gotten that promotion. 20% hated me and they're always going to hate me and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Right now, outside of my immediate circle, they worked with a different supervisor, a different person that they naturally believed were the better candidate for the role because they've experienced value from that person. They haven't experienced value from me so we're because we're human, we are not going to study the analytics and the statistics of performance. We're just going to say, wait a minute, my buddy didn't get promoted. That dummy did. That's a human thing. Like it's a natural thing. Um, now, so because we weren't in proximity with one another within the same organization, even within the same job site, but mm. different roles, there's different contact. Now, the, the dynamic of bringing somebody from another office or, or hiring from outside, oh my God, that's a violation. Like <laughs> it is a natural thing to expect people to be resistant to that person, right? I mean, we do it in the family structure, Yvonne. 
when somebody brings their new girlfriend or new boyfriend or new significant other to dinner or to an outing, it's not hugs and, oh, welcome to the family. It's like, hmm, let's see what the <laughs> hell this person's all about. That is a human response. We should expect that. Now, I know this because I did it wrong a lot, a lot of times. <laughs> Whenever I get promoted, and now, you know, I'm a consultant. So I'm coming in and getting to see under the covers and see all the dirty laundry. And I have to earn trust as rapidly as possible because I'm just some weirdo that's going to leave at the end of the week or whatever the situation is. And the way I did it at first, which I think a lot of people do, I got promoted. I'm really not sure that I know what the hell I'm supposed to be doing, but I also know that I want to be the best of the best of the best, right? Like I, that's me. And what am I going to project? I'm not going to project that I don't know what I'm doing and I'd like some support to be good at my job. I'm going to project that I'm the best of the best of the best. Now, what does that require for me to hide my insecurities behind what it, we'll just call it um, competency, uh, even though that's not necessarily it, but I'm trying to tell people how competent I am. That's my messaging. I'm hiding my insecurities, my human stuff, because everybody else is a little bit worried. Everybody else is really just trying to figure it out. And so that leaves little space for me to listen because I'm so busy telling everybody how awesome I am and how I can help them. And I got bosses, new bosses that I want to impress. So anytime there's a deviation from the standard or non-compliant behavior, what am I incentivized to do? to tell the bosses. And so the natural behavior to like rise up the, the, the organizational chart creates a situation that makes it easy for me to lose connection with the human beings. Is that right? It's like it's a nat, it's in the system, right? My, because the way the system is structured the way it is, I'm gonna adapt my behavior because my primary focus back then was to get a promotion, get a raise and progress. How do I do that? By showing that I'm better than everybody else. And early on, what did I do? Well, I took every advantage I could to make sure and point out everybody else's faults. <laughs> that's not a good way to do it, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's just an unhealthy environment. Some environments, that's the only way you're going to progress. If that's your environment and you don't like that, change it. It doesn't matter where you are on the org, like within the organization. If you're the manager, supervisor, CEO, executive, if you don't like the way it is, change it. And also, if you're just looking at it from a personal human perspective, that environment is going to take a lot of damn work to change. So change your environment, right? Go work somewhere else where, other, where people appreciate different things. Now, back to the listening part, right, is... As a supervisor, I am compelled. I feel like I have to have all the answers to every question, every situation. And the fact is, I don't. I don't have to have all the answers. Now, because I believe I have to have all the answers, anybody that comes to me with a problem, I don't even let them finish telling me about the situation. I give them the answer and say, get back to work. Mm -hmm. Was that not a demeaning interaction, Yvonne? If you come and say, hey, you know, I was editing this podcast and like, oh, well, you know what you should do? How does that feel? <laughs> right? Like this, I feel judged. 
I feel critiqued. I feel minimized because you didn't even let me finish articulating what I was dealing with. And so what's an easy, hard change that anybody listening right now can make to that dynamic that helps us become better listeners and more connected to the people in front of us? Instead of responding with an answer, respond with a question and say, like, here's an easy, put the, write this one down. The next time somebody comes to you with a problem or a situation, the first response should be, what have you tried? The second response should be, what do you think we should do? Right? Because now I'm engaging that person's critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. I'm demonstrating appreciation for them as a human being. And I'm also not compounding my damn workload by taking the problem away from them. And I'm forming connection because I'm saying, I value your insight. I value your experience. I trust your observations. Tell me what they are so we can choose a direction together as a unit instead of these separate entities within the damn business. Jesse, so if I understand correctly, what you just said, showing, how, do we, how can we call it? Empathy, vulnerability, and maybe even empowerment by asking questions about how would you do, how would you do it? What have you tried? Uh, is that, in fact, it's, it's a wrong belief that people have that in the labor area is something that is that is considered as weakness. Because I, I have heard that that comment. That's that's why I, it just come up came up to my mind that you cannot show so much that you don't know in the labor area. You can do it. You can use your human centric approach in the office, but not in no, it wouldn't work. But what you're saying is quite powerful. It it works in both sides. A hundred percent. And so. So here's another like another reality, and I'm and like I'm a good example of what again what not to do. I'm probably the best example of what not to do on all the things I I help people with. <laughs> Anyhow, like so I came from the field, came up as a plumber, installer, foreman, field superintendent, so super field oriented. I have a natural bias against project managers, right? In my book, though, they're carpet dwellers because they live in the office. That's not a nice thing to call them. Right. And they know that we feel this way about them. So naturally, when they come and approach a field person that's on the field side of the business, that project manager has some insecure, like they have some trauma that we field people have imposed upon them because we don't appreciate their work. We've never showed appreciation for their work. We always critique them and wish they would just get the hell back to the office. And so there's a net, like, so there's a barrier. Now I'm a project manager. I have some insecurities about approaching the field because they already don't like me just because my stupid title. And I need their help, but I don't know how to speak their language because I've never spent any time with them because they won't let me into their circle. Mm. And so there, that's, so it becomes very directive, very fact-based. Like you got to do this, you're behind schedule, you're over budget, like stick to the facts give them a performance management and show them the gap from the target and where they currently are. Sure. But how about let's just understand each other. And so my point is that barrier is we're all working on it. 
like we're all building it from the office side and from the the field side or the shop floor side. So the question then becomes, how do we break that barrier? And it is as simple and hard as spending time with each other and listening to each other, understanding what people value. Yvonne, you and I, before we started recording, you walked me through your trajectory through life and how you've moved around in your family and the different places that you lived and your observations about the space that you're in now. I'm like, man, this dude's got game. Like I have tremendous, like I already had respect for you. Now it's like, this guy's a baller. Um, <laughs> and we had, we had some dialogue about the way our names are pr pronounced. And so we were able to connect on a very human, real thing to me and to you. And so that's created the dynamic for us to have this really thoughtful conversation that's not scripted, that <laughs> is really about curiosity and helping people because you invested the time for us to connect as human beings first. That, that, that's kind of what I'm talking about is how, rather, which opportunities are we going to stop missing to connect with the human beings in front of us? Because we have them a hundred times a day. And so let's, I, I have a, a little, um, what, what, what shall we call it? Uh, email challenge that's called visible leadership. It's a series of emails that give the receiver a, a challenge. And the, the first, and it's about, so what is visible leadership? Visible leadership is being within eyeshot of the people that we're leading and supporting. How do we do that? Well, you got to put your butt out there, right? And so one of the assignments is go out to the field, whether that's the warehouse, the shop, the factory, the job site, doesn't matter. Leave your place of comfort, go to their place of comfort and meet somebody new, somebody that you don't know. Not to check their pre-task safety plan or their production targets or to correct. Now, you know, if they're in imminent danger, make sure they're okay. Beyond that, learn their name, understand why they're doing the type of work they did or they're doing, why they chose it, and where are they from. We have that opportunity all day, every day. And if we just did that and demonstrated interest in the men and women that are out there doing the work, we would have the trust and the connection such that they will inform us of the things that we should be focusing on to improve. And then when we take action on making things better for them and with them, when we have our big brilliant idea that we're gonna deploy a new damn software, they're gonna say, oh, you know what, Yvonne was cool with me. He helped me with this thing, I'll give it a shot. Right, like it's that easy, but we haven't, I don't, I just think we're not aware of the opportunities that we're missing. And we wait until it's high pressure, high urgency to try and make human connections. And, and it's just, just not going to happen. I love the fact that the fact that you are already building on, on something that is considered one of the key challenges uh, in the workplace, place with, with, which is in fact that this psychological safety, how would I break this wall, this barrier that there is between you and me? I don't know you. I need to feel uh, safe that if I say something, you are not going to be judging me. Uh, if I provide an idea, you will, and this idea is not matching your expectations, I, at, at least that you are going 
that I, I don't feel like I'm somebody's going to retaliate or consider me as dumb or, or whatsoever. I I I really like this uh, the, this aspect and something that is quite powerful. Um, and we were discussing before, so the fact that I I come from a different origin that most of my Swiss people uh, uh, around the village. Uh, I mean, if somebody asked me with the sense of genuine curiosity about my background, I'm, I get excited. But I feel it when somebody asks me, is it curiosity? Is it to use it as a, a, as a tool to, uh, to point out that if I fail, it's because, yeah, he's a Latino. Oh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, I, I mean, I have lived for a long time so uh, in, in this place, so I, I understand it. But genuine curiosity, you can, you can feel it. You can feel it because it's not only about your region, it's about your family, about how you do things. And even when we ask, because you you gave me the example also of the questions, how are you doing the things here? Uh, I mean, the way we ask that question matters quite, quite a lot because if I come from the office and it looks like I'm judging or assessing you, of course, I'm going to be in the demonstration mode, protecting me because that's the natural way of, of the brain, so survival, survival mode instead of of being generally telling you this is how I do it. Uh, yes. That's that's quite perfect, Jesse. I I remember that somewhere. I mean, I'm very curious. So some somewhere I I read that you were an enthusiast of the lean methodology. So yes, I, I, I was right, right. <laughs> So is it possible, because I know just the principles, is it possible to use the lean methodology to kind of continuously, continuously improve this connection with the team, how to, to have like a type of measurements and the approach of continuously improving my way as a, as a leader of, of becoming better with my team, either it's a remote team or is it a mix of hybrid team of, People in the office, people in the uh, in the in, in front in the field. Is it possible? Absolutely, one hundred percent. And and I, I'm going to say entirely possible and ultimately measurable if I internalize it. And so, what do I mean by that? One of the principles of lean is to identify customer value, mm. which we put a lot of damn effort into creating avatars for marketing and going out business development. And like, we put a tremendous amount of effort in understanding what the external customer values. Now, if I think of it on a human level, or rather I'll say it this way, the way I've applied it, that it's helped me grow my influence, build my business and serve others to a degree that I never thought was possible is because I think of the customer, I think of everybody that I interact with as the customer. And I need to understand and identify what it is the person in front of me values. Do they value what so maybe, maybe we can make it like easy. They could be really complicated. But you've read you've heard of the the book The Five Love Languages? No. Okay. So there's Tell a book and they've kind of they created buckets a uh, definition that we kind of all generally appreciate have a different love language. One of those languages is touch. Some people really like if they receive love through touch. Some one of them is gifts, like they re receiving a gift 
they feel loved and appreciated. Or rather, it's also how they most uh, pronouncedly show love by giving gifts, by touching, um, mm. undivided attention or quality time is one of the languages. Uh, I don't remember the other two. Anyhow, in a romantic relationship, if I understand that my partner, what they value is quality time, but all I'm doing is giving them gifts, of course, we're not going to be connected, mm. right? So back to one of the principles, which is identify customer value. If I put in the appropriate effort to understand what the person in front of me values, that's applying lean at the personal level to transform our relationships, right? Another one is seek perfection, <laughs> right? The PD plan, do, check, adjust. What does that mean? That means every interaction is an experiment. The last one, how good did I do at understanding what the person appreciated in front of me? If they're ecstatic and they love me and they're giving testimonials to all of their colleagues about me and the value I provide, then I did well. Mm -hmm. But if they're not, what did I do? What did I miss? How did I miss the target? And what can I do to adjust going forward in order to hit that target, right? And so there's a few, there's a bunch of other principles, but in terms of applying lean to like the connecting with the human being, just what's my, first, let me identify my objective. Do I want to have a human centric environment? Now, I'm gonna say right now in the construction industry, I know that the leaders that create a the conditions for the men and women that are doing the work to thrive and grow, they're going to beat the hell out of the competition, no doubt, 100%. And so if that's your objective, learning how to systematically help your people learn how to demonstrate appreciation for the men and women doing the work is a totally measurable thing, right? You can put systems and stuff in place to like reinforce the behaviors or get practice at the different behaviors and so forth. But what is the target? Where are we now? What are we going to do to get closer to the target? That's the Kata method, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's totally applicable. Now, I'll also say, if you want to fast track your experience and the gains, do it, apply the thinking to yourself first, because that is going to equip you to better serve and support the people that you want to go through that experience. And so like you'll have way more progress, way faster progress when you're demonstrating the behaviors you seek, which is also part of the lean, this lean galaxy, which is, doesn't just live within lean. They're kind of universal principles, but we've put them in this bucket and put this brand over it. Demonstrate the behaviors you seek, set a target, understand where you're at, do something to get better. It's not that hard. <laughs> Two things that I stay out of what you just said. So the principle of empathizing. So because considering this avatar, persona, whatever you want to call it, where you understand either what makes them happy, what makes them really unhappy, and what do they want to achieve <clears throat> in order to start this conversation, this connection. And then this principle of that kind of, I don't know if I understood it correctly, that instead of looking for perfection in one shot, you are in continuous iteration and just improving little by little, but always like having a data. Did I achieve what I wanted to do? 
So that's it. I love this principle. In fact, it can be applied for many, many things. It's unfortunate that it's used on, on production systems, in maybe in digital marketing or two, but I mean, it can be applied for human connection. A hundred percent. And and I'll add, because I just had a post about this about three weeks ago. I think, ooh, I'm gonna get in trouble for this one. <laughs> I believe the reason we measure budget, schedule, output, clicks, money, like all of those things is because they're the simple things to to measure. Hmm. It's so easy. And and more importantly, because those things are external from me. To measure hmm. connection, to measure progress on um, uh, empathy, it's going to require us to look within. And I think that's why it's hard because it's it way easier for me to tell you what you're doing wrong than it is for me to evaluate how I contributed to that negative experience. <laughs> Funny enough, it's like this concept of self-awareness is so tough. Like maybe when we are younger, we don't give a damn about it. And then when we are older, the only thing is that we have become a little bit blind on who we really are because the more you progress in the career ladder, the more, the less we we understand why we did the things that we uh, we, we do. That's uh, incredible. I wanted to ask you one one question that I find that is quite important, and and I'm I want to benefit from your wisdom on on that. So thank you. The, the, People believe that it's very hard to motivate people to to take ownership. So I mean, I mean, no. In fact, what they believe is that a person in the office would understand it better. The uh, this concept of ownership, because I don't know, because he made a study. So whatever bullshit they 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 want to invent. And is it the same way to encourage to take ownership of your job? uh in the manual area versus the office what could be the major difference if there is any yeah yeah it's there's not a difference <laughs> it's the same <laughs> why would i demonstrate ownership if my supervisor doesn't demonstrate ownership hmm. why would i demonstrate ownership if my peers there's no positive or negative consequence to their actions Right. So ownership is about me um, grabbing with my hands and my heart the commitments that I made and the outcomes of those commitments. Now, when I have a boss that is always telling me about how we're underperforming and how there's a there's a talent and a skill gap and an experience gap and the office sucks and I wish they knew what the hell they were doing. That is not a demonstration of ownership. Mm. When my boss is telling me, hey, I know that last direction I gave you was kind of sorry, like miserable, and I didn't give you all the tools and equipment that you needed to execute the task, that's on me. I'm going to do better. And the way you approach the work was not acceptable. And so here are some things I'm going to recommend for you so that you can reach the target next time. What do you need from me so that I can help you reach the target? That is me 
demonstrating my ownership as the uh, as my responsibility to my job. Accountability is me being accountable to my commitments. And when I take ownership for my part in every success and every failure that I have, I can do something to make it better. And when I do that all the time in front of people, they recognize that's what ownership looks like. That's what this person is looking for. I'm going to do the same thing. But if I show up and say, hey, you know, I got an email from, from the office and they are saying that we need to do this, I've just abdicated all of my ownership. And, mm -hmm. and that's true throughout at every layer of the organization. You have to, rather, you don't have to, you can keep doing it the way you're doing it and you'll have the same outcomes. But when I take ownership, own, when what does that look like? It didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. I will admit and say I was wrong, I missed, or even I made a damn good decision and look at how it turned out. That's also owning the thing and changing my behaviors, my thinking, my actions going forward to produce a different outcome that is ownership. Hmm. And if I walk that way, it helps everybody up and down of me on that org chart understand what ownership looks like. So it's not a matter of saying they just don't take ownership for their job, which might be possible. It's really more about saying, I'm not satisfied with the degree of ownership my people are taking. What can I change so that the ripples of ownership expand to the degree I want them to expand. You are totally right. I mean, this approach would work in both of the worlds. Just that in my cynical mind, I was just imagining, yeah, but in an office, it's easier to fake that I'm doing something versus in the field. Because I can go around with a piece of paper going around the offices and I look busy. Looking busy is easier in the, in an office, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's in the field too, Yvonne, like you just reminded, when I, really? this is when I was an apprentice and I got caught in a room that I wasn't, and I was just messing around, wasting time, talking to somebody else. When I heard like the fancy boots walking, like, oh man, the, the supervisors are here. <laughs> the first thing I did was I'd look up and I'd walk fast walk like at a fast pace like i wasn't leaving the room i knew that if i was looking up and walking like with intent they would think i was working hard so it's the same thing we can mask it all day every day there, there's you can hide oh, that's all amazing i wasn't expecting that one okay i need to to learn that one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jesse so we are almost at the end of this episode regarding human connection uh, and how to improve, especially for leaders who are dealing with this hybrid world of having a field workforce, manual workforce together with interactions with the office uh, uh, people. And we have, I have got personally a, quite a lot of insights uh, on the topic. How would people, uh, what can people do in, in, if they have questions for you? How can they reach you out uh, after this episode? Oh, beautiful. Thank you. So I'm going to give three three options. One, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. 
I'm very active on LinkedIn. And actually, I would appreciate if anybody got any value from this, if you would connect and follow and let's chat there. Uh, and you can find me, Jesse, if you just search Jesse Depth Builder on LinkedIn, you can find me. Um, I have my website, which is depthbuilder.com, where all my stuff is on there. Uh, and, and also, I want to like be explicit for your audience. like If they're interested in like building this skill around listening and better connecting with the people that are in front of them, we have a, a, a community, an online community called Emotional Bungee Jumpers. We meet once Ooh. a month and we practice we practice these skills of listening, um, receiving feedback, giving feedback, observing, staying focused on the task at hand. It's a super fun exercise. Uh, and all the people that have been through it have had pretty significant shifts in the way they function, rather in terms of their self-awareness. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, God, I need to get better at that. And so that's why we practice every month. Um, and so any and all of the above, I would absolutely love to connect with your community, my friend. Let's see. So for the community of, of emotional veggie jumpers, so the link, I can al also find it in your website, depthbuilder.com. Yes. So if you go like the best way to find all of that is go to depthbuilder.com forward slash services. And okay. in on that page is you'll be able to access sweat equity improvement, emotional bungee jumpers and transformational conversations, which are like the core services that I want to offer. But those aren't the like, that's not the full uh, menu. Those are just the things that I recognize to be the most transformational. I will definitely put all these links below this uh, this episode. I, I also would like to encourage people. I mean, you have written a book called Bec Becoming a Promise You Are, uh, you are Intended to Be. Uh, I think that this could be a valuable resource for a lot of people who are into this improvement, continuous improvement, this lean that we have spoken, that having data and getting better to that. Um, so I, I'm going to put the link also to the Amazon website where you have the, they can download awesome. the, um, the book. Jesse, it was really lovely to meet you. A real, a real pleasure, really. Uh, oh. I, I, I think that your, uh, your, I can only call it wisdom because if it has been built on experience and uh, on experience and, and trying on your own uh, new things, I, I, I can only call it wisdom. And, and I am pretty sure that many of these, uh, 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 my audience is going to love and appreciate because, and I was thinking also, would it be interesting for Europeans? But it is exactly the same. It, it, the USA or Europe has the same type of challenges. Uh, well, maybe in France you would you would tell me, yeah, but they're always demonstrating and all the stuff. This French, we know that from Switzerland, we're always criticizing the French. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. Thank you, Ivan. Jesse, it was really lovely. Have an excellent day. Thank you very much for your presence. Thank you, sir. <laughs>